when you and I decided to be a human on Earth, because Earth lives in a universe built on the principle of seven, uh, among other things, there were seven basic choices for uh, what vehicle was going to anchor us into this universe. You find a lot of prostitutes who are physically centered scholars. That's me right there. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm a scholar physical. So I'm, that makes yeah. so much sense. Yeah. <laughs> the big hormone enneagram. Hi, I'm John Lukovic, uh, sexual self president with five wing four five eight trifix. Hi, I'm David Gray, self-pressed sexual 9 with 1, 9, 7, 4, trifix. What up, it's Emika, I'm an 8 wing 7, sexual self-pressed with 8, 5, 4, fixes. Hi, I'm Nancy, I am a self-pressed social 3, wing 4, with a 3, 6, 9, trifix. If you like our podcast, guys, make sure you go like and subscribe on the Apple Podcast app, and if you really like us, you should definitely leave us a review. So, welcome to the Big Hormone Enneagram Show, and uh, we've got a special guest with us here today, Shepard Hoodwin. Shepard is the Michael Teachings channel that we've been working with. Um, some of you guys know, we Joseph and I did a teaser preview bonus episode a couple weeks back to gear up and get people um, going about this topic, because there's so Def- much- Definitely fun. listen to that episode before you listen to this one, right? Yeah, yeah, just to get, because there's so many concepts- Complicated. Yeah, just to kind of get a head start. Uh, but just a real, some a little bit of a background. A couple years after I got into the Enneagram, I found my way to Michael Teachings, and it's just been really captivating to me to sort of discover all the ways that this system fills in the holes of understanding that of answers I couldn't get from the Enneagram. Like it took me a couple years to get over my own skepticism to even order a chart, and so Shepherd was the first channel that I ordered a chart from. And then, of course, it took me like several more years to get over my outrage of my chart and to sort of realize that (laughs) Shepard is a really accurate and precise channel. And so, you know, recently I've been encouraging everyone to get a chart through him. And uh, there's been a lot of excitement and people who've been really, very curious about learning about the system. And so we're excited to have you here with us today, Shepard. So if you can talk about yourself and give a little intro for the peoples about who you are and what you do and we can get into it. Great. Thank you so much. Well, I live in Laguna Niguel, California, which is halfway between Los Angeles and San Diego. And I've been channeling Michael for 34 years now. Uh, I've been on a spiritual path since I was about 14. And uh I tend to have a short attention span, which is typical of sages. Sage is one of the seven soul types in the Michael teaching. But I have never found the Michael system boring. I keep finding more interesting things about it. I keep learning. And I love having the chart information on people and then observing them and therefore validating the teachings, but also seeing more of the nuance of it. Um, I'm also an author. I have about 14 books that are available on my site. My site's name is just my name, shepherdhoodwin.com. It's S-H-E-P-H-E-R-D 
H-O-O-D-W-I-N. And uh, in fact, I just published a new one yesterday. Oh, really? Called All is yeah. Choice. Yes. One of the platitudes of the Michael teachings is that all is choice, and the word choice is used a great deal, but I was increasingly feeling that uh, most Michael students didn't really have a deep understanding of it and, and only felt that I was beginning to see how profound and important this concept is in our spiritual growth. So uh, I just um, made that available on Amazon yesterday. I love to write. Um, and I also do a bunch of other kinds of sessions. I do sessions where I channel Michael and people can ask uh, questions. I also do intuitive readings, which are not directly with Michael, but are uh, guided and also include a lot of healing energy work. I do work with healing energy in all of my sessions. Even if I'm not conscious of it, I'll notice that there's something profound energetically going on uh, while I'm working with people. I do past life therapy sessions. I do counseling. I teach other people how to channel, especially those who have already been making some kind of connection but need a little help refining it. And I teach workshops in the Michael teachings. I'm considering doing a, a Zoom workshop uh, in the new year. Uh, so if people are interested in that, they can get back to me on that. So that's, uh, that's me in a nutshell. If I may, could I tell the people at least what I think your Enneagram type is, even though we're not really going to be talking about Enneagram stuff? Um, just to Absolutely, give them... yes. So I've been talking to, uh, having some discussions with Shepard. We haven't really gotten too deep into Enneagram stuff, but I've told him that I believe that he is a, a nine and uh, a social sexual nine with uh, the 972 trifix. And so we don't have to get into that, but just for our audience who do know what that means to give them some context as to who you are. But real quick, Joseph is here on his call with us. I hadn't mentioned, <laughs> did a real Hi. intro of everyone. Uh, of course, everyone, the whole crew's here as well. Hi, Joseph. Hi, Shepard. Some of you know that Joseph's been involved with Michael teaching stuff. We, we He's built the Pinterest boards that has organized all the body types and the different role combinations. So something that people can go visit and get a pretty good idea of what these energies are like. But just to get us all started, the first question I think most people have been wondering about is, and would like to hear from you, Shepard, is what the hell is Michael Teachings and what is channeling and how are you doing this stuff? Cool. Well, the question, what is channeling, is a profound one. My book on the Michael Teachings called Journey of Your Soul uh, devotes the first hundred pages to an exploration of channeling, what it is, what can go wrong with it. Um, how to use that kind of information. But in a nutshell, uh, channeling is something that people have been doing in virtually every culture throughout history under various names. In many indigenous cultures, you had the shaman who would go into an altered state, perhaps with uh, the help of chanting, dancing, drumming, uh, maybe using uh, psychotropic substances, but they would find some way to put aside the filter of their conscious mind ego to be able to hear on a higher level, and they would then uh, transport uh, information from the spirit world uh, that other people could use. 
um, the shamanic journeying is similar to that. So um, channeling is basically connecting with any being who is not a human speaking human languages. Uh, often it refers to those on higher planes. What do I mean by higher planes? So we're on the physical plane, and the physical plane is the first of seven planes of creation that we will all eventually experience. And they exist simultaneously with us, but they vibrate at a faster rate than what we classify as solid matter. And therefore, a lot of people don't believe that they exist, or if they do believe it, they have a very simplistic idea of what that is. For you uh, nuance fans out there, you can also channel energies that vibrate a little slower than the solid physical plane. And those would include the nature spirits, the devas, uh, which have come down to us in folk folklore as uh, fairies, elves, goblins, etc., but that are really quite intelligent and sophisticated beings. They're like angels of the physical plane. So you can channel just about anything. You could actually channel the consciousness of the sun or that of a rock, although obviously to do so would mean translating their thoughts into something that would be comprehensible to us. Mm. The Michael teachings. There was a group of friends in Oakland, California, uh, five of them, who would do various personal growth types of things. And one of the things they did was they attended a fourth-way group taught by a man named Robert Burton, uh, and they learned about uh, Gurdjieff and teachings such as body type centers and chief features. In Northern California in the late 60s and early 70s, a lot of well-educated progressive people were searching. Uh, that's when Esalen got started. People were going to a lot of workshops, past life regression, um, healing things, all sorts of uh, leading edge psychological types of techniques. People were taking a lot of drugs. So this was not uncommon that a group of friends in the Oakland area would have been exploring things together and searching. In 1973, they decided that they would experiment with a Ouija board and see if they could get messages from spirit. And a woman named Sarah Chambers was the main person working uh, the Ouija board, although there were others that helped with this. And at first they channeled a soul who was said to be an extraterrestrial, someone who was in his last lifetime on another planet, but was speaking from the next plane of existence, the astral plane. We all hang out on the astral plane between lives, and also many of us hang out there when we're asleep at night. So again, this would not be unusual for that. And then uh, they started channeling uh, a spirit guide who is full-time on the astral plane. And after a few months of that, they uh, started getting a change in the messages coming through. And they had connected with the Michael entity. Michael is a group of 1,050 souls who completed their lifetimes on the physical plane of Earth, just like the lifetimes we're having now. And they also completed the second plane of creation, which is called the astral plane. 
and they work together as a reuniting group of souls from the third plane, which is called the causal plane. The causal plane is an intellectually oriented plane. The astral plane is an emotionally oriented plane, and obviously the physical plane is oriented towards manifestation, vitality, solidity, life force, etc. So um, they started channeling Michael and getting these amazing messages. In fact, the first Michael book was called Messages for Michael. It came out in 1979. So over that decade, they started collecting information that, as far as I know, is unique within the annals of channeled literature. Uh, if you uh, go to a bookstore with a well-stocked New Age slash channeling section, you will see a great number of books but you probably won't find any others that have actually brought through a whole discrete system that has its own terminology, similar to the way that uh, astrology has its own terminology, that defines all these new terms and explains in great detail how we, as eternal souls, set up our lifetimes, how we actually got to be who we are, where we are, doing what we're doing. So um, as Sarah mainly started channeling this information, their group grew. And by 1975, there were about 40, 50 people that would gather, sometimes camping out in their VW vans. This was the 70s after all. And um, they would do all sorts of things together, but the their sessions centered around Sarah channeling Michael for them. And uh, some of the people in the group were also uh, Gurdjieff, Fourth Way people. Sarah met uh, an author named Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough uh, during that time. And for some reason, Sarah, who was an excellent writer herself, did not want to publish the material. And so she sold the rights to Quinn Yarbrough. Uh, Quinn is mainly known as the author of vampire novels. She's very prolific. You could look her up if you're interested. But she did publish uh, four Michael books and very quickly started channeling Michael herself and formed her own group. And uh, the, the second, third, and fourth books are mainly her channeling or those of other people in her group. But it's all pretty consistent. And so by the time the early 80s came around, and the first Michael book had sold quite a number of copies, many other people started channeling Michael. And they got their different spins on it. Not everything uh, was in perfect agreement, which is understandable when you just consider the nature of things. But um, I heard about the Michael teachings in 1986, where one of my best friends, uh, had read messages from Michael and was very excited to share the information for me. She herself is a gifted channel. And in fact, she is also a student of the uh, uh, Enneagram. And she also told me that she thought that I was a number nine. So it kind of brings the circle around. So um, we were sitting at a picnic table in Colorado, and she was saying to me, you know, I think you're a sage soul, and I think you have a goal of acceptance, and you're an idealist, and I'm a realist and a scholar. And everything she said was was totally right on. So I had just moved to New York, and I was 
back in Colorado visiting, and I went home, and I thought, um, I need to find a Michael channel uh, because this stuff is so interesting. I had not yet even tracked down the book that I was planning to, and um, I had told my friend Pat that uh, I was going to try to find a Michael channel, and she says, well, when you do, ask them this question. So... I was sitting at work and things were slow and me being the, the organized person that I am, I thought I should really start, you know, making notes of my questions for when I find a Michael channel. So I got out a piece of scrap paper and I wrote down a question I wanted to be sure to remember to ask and my pencil kept moving and I got the answer. And I thought, oh, well, that's interesting. And uh, I got the answer for Pat and I sent it to her and she said, Hey, ask him this. And I said, oh, okay. <laughs> and that's how I started channeling Michael. And it was really the only time that I channeled them through automatic writing. But that, that was um, how I started. So it's really funny because I don't remember ever having made a conscious decision that, oh, I think I'm going to become a Michael channel. And I've noticed this in my life that the things that were most natural and core to me, I ne never had to decide to do. I just started doing them. So um, within about a month or so, I was uh, designing my own Michael chart and working to get overleaves for people and um, trying to explain the, uh, the charts to my friends so that I could learn it better myself. And um, very quickly, I started uh, doing it professionally. There were three synchronicities in the six-week time period, and I told you about Pat telling me about the book, but in that same six-week period, another really good friend of mine in New York City, and it turns out all three of us are in the same soul family. It's called an entity. It's a group of about a thousand souls. But uh, this other friend was dating uh, a new girlfriend, and we all had lunch together, and she told me about this thing called the Michael teachings and that she had known these other channels, not their chambers in her group. And, um, you know, I didn't put it together immediately that this was the same thing. And then a third friend of mine and I were going to go out to dinner and I didn't know it, but he did amateur psychic readings. He said, oh, there's a message floating around you. Do you mind if I do a reading for you? I said, no. I mean, I didn't know what a psychic reading was, but I said, sure, why not? And um, he channeled someone who called himself Michael. And I also didn't put that all together at the time, but I thought that a lot of the message was pretty generic, very nice, but nothing that seemed like uh, it would be validating until this Michael referred to me by the name Shalom. I was raised Jewish, I'm not practicing now, but when I was in Hebrew school as a child, everyone got a, a Hebrew name, and mine was Shalom. Just like when I was in French class in junior high school, they gave me the name Pierre. I mean, it was sort of, just sort of arbitrary, except Shalom and Shepherd both start with S's, which is a big thing in traditional Judaism. So, and... My grandmother told me I was named after her father, Shalom. So that got my attention. So um, what I realized as I learned about how the universe works is that I had made a soul agreement before the lifetime began. And when I hit this age, which was 31, 
I was being tapped on the shoulder and said, okay, uh, time for you to start channeling Michael. And literally a year before that, I had never even heard of channeling. I didn't even know what it was. So I, I, I learned in a hurry. And I had so many questions about what the heck was going on and what channeling was. So very early on, I started picking the brains of other channels. And I would channel about channeling. And that's what led to the first 100 pages of Journey of Your Soul, which is my exploration of what channeling is from a channel's uh, point of view. Wow, that's really interesting. John, you had a question about channeling that you we talked about before the call. Yeah. Uh, hi, uh, hi, Shepard. Uh, I'm John. Hey, John. Um, uh, I'm so just to be straight up, I'm, you know, uh, I guess abiding by what I guess is my types attitude, but I'm very skeptical of all this. <laughs> so I, you know, just, I'm, I'm curious about, um, there's, let me think, there's a lot of questions I got, but one of the things that strikes me about this system is that you've got these seven roles, these seven basic roles, and that unlike the Enneagram where we talk about type, here we're talking about roles, essence roles. And from that point of view, it suggests to me that there is something that you'd say that these souls are trying to, there's something that the combinations of souls or something are trying to accomplish by abiding by their role. Is that correct? Let's frame it a little bit bigger. So at the core, you and I and all of us are eternal sparks of the Tao or part of the source. We are part of the creator. And at certain point, we decided that uh, it would be fun to go to a planet and inhabit a physical life form on that planet and see what uh, we could learn from that. So it's sort of like we were at the Dow Travel Agency and we were looking through the brochures and the, the brochure for Earth caught our eye. And we thought, oh, that's a beautiful planet, and that human life form, that's really an interesting one. Pretty aggressive and a little weird, but uh, I think I'd like to uh, take a little trip to Earth and be a human and then ascend through all the higher planes, and, uh, and then I'll be back home in the Tao, and I will have had this really cool adventure or vacation or If, if I could go back to the Tao travel agency, I would have strangled my soul and been like, fucking don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what the fuck did I decide? Uh, what was I thinking? <laughs> I must have been drunk when I chose her. <laughs> what did they put in my drink? Someone rude. You it? Yes, you were drugged and dragged to Earth, and you didn't want to be a human. And you wanted to be a dolphin, and oh, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, this yeah. is hysterical, but you would not believe how many people I have the same conversation with. <laughs> and my answer to them is, look, this is a very difficult time to be a human on Earth. It's very high stress. Things are changing a lot. There's been a great deal of darkness. But this is not how it always has been, and it's not how it always will be. And a lot of us have been incarnating on this crazy planet for a very long time when things were much better, and I think they're going to get a lot better again in the future. Uh, in, in Hinduism, they talk about these vast ages, and they say that we're just coming out of one called the Kali Yuga, which means the age of darkness. And mm -hmm. so, hey, it's, it's been a tough one. But, um, yeah, so 
anyway, when you and I decided to be a human on Earth and we were looking at the brochure, uh, because Earth lives in a universe built on the principle of seven, uh, among other things, there were seven basic choices for uh, what vehicle was going to anchor us into this universe so that we could do this journey, the journey of your soul. Mm-hmm. And those seven different vehicles are the seven soul types. So it's, we call them the roles, but it really gives you a certain style, a certain way of operating, and you chose it because you thought it would be the most fun and interesting one to do uh, on planet Earth. Maybe before uh, you were an artisan on planet Earth, John, uh, you were on another planet where the life form looked very different and you were a warrior soul. And before that, you were a scholar soul and still a different life form. So you were probably thinking, oh, I haven't been an artisan for a while. I think that would be really interesting on this planet. And so you chose it. And so it doesn't mean that by choosing to be an artisan, you are going to be an artist or a craftsman in every single lifetime. What it does mean is that you are approaching uh, all of life from the tool set of an artisan. So let's talk about the soul. If you talk to most people who believe in the existence of a soul, like, say, in almost any religion, they probably haven't really thought much about the construction of the soul. They probably assume that every soul is just made of the same thing, just like every drop of water in the ocean is water. And they don't even think to account for the differences. But what we learn in the Michael teachings is that the seven soul types are literally constructed differently. And one of the ways in which they are different is that they have different numbers of psychic inputs. Now, we're all used to being ourselves, and it's easy for us to assume that everybody is constructed the same way. And we look at other people and we say, well, they're just like us, but they're inferior because <laughs> I'm good at this and they're not. You know, what's wrong with them? No, they're constructed differently. So we have the three roles, which we call the solid roles, that only have one input. And that means they focus all their concentration all the time on one thing. These are warriors, kings, and scholars. And so let's say you have a partner who's a warrior. If they're thinking about you, that's all they're thinking about. If they're working, that's all they're thinking about. And let's say you're an artisan and you say to your warrior partner, Darling, were you thinking about me today at work? And warriors being bluntly honest people, uh, uh, the partner would probably say, no, I wasn't thinking about you. I was thinking about work. How could I be thinking about you and thinking about work at the same time? Well, you're an artisan. You have five inputs, which is the most of any roles. And so you could think about your partner and um, what you're going to cook for dinner and that movie you saw and two other things at the same time. Mm. So. You're constructed differently. Uh, I'm a sage soul, and sages have three inputs. So artisans and sages are the two expression roles, and they have the most inputs. Sages are designed for being good performers, because if I'm up on stage in front of a group, 
I can be aware of my own body and sensations, what I'm doing with it, but I can also be aware of the audience and I can also be aware of the other actors. And so when I get up on stage, I can find that energizing. But if you put a warrior up on stage, they have to shut down. They have to ignore the audience and it, 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 it maybe pay attention to the other actors and ignore themselves. They can't process three things at once. Then you have the two inspiration roles, which are server and priest, and they have two inputs. So servers can look at their own experience. We call that concrete reality. Every soul has one input for concrete or current reality. In other does, words, does input mean where your attention is uh, divided, or I'm not clear what input means? Yeah. Well, you know. If you have a, a stereo system, especially like an old-fashioned stereo receiver, there's a bunch of plugs in the back, and you can mm -hmm. plug things into them, and those are called inputs. Mm -hmm. And so um, the only difference is, is if you have a stereo receiver and you have one input for your CD player, one for the TV, one for the cassette, etc., uh, only one of them is going to play through the receiver at a time. Mm -hmm. And with souls, if you have five inputs, you can play all five of them at the same time. And that's why artisans are so creative because they can grab a piece from input one and a piece from input three and a piece of in, uh, from input five and then mix and match and come up with something totally new. Because mm -hmm. that's basically what creativity is. It's breaking things down to their components and then recombining them in new ways. Uh, this is not to say that a warrior or anyone else can't be really creative, but they're going to be creative differently mm -hmm. than the stereotypical way that that artisans are creative. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we all have an input for current reality, for, for what's in front of us, because we could not function in a body if we didn't have an input for that. We have to be able to be aware of our surroundings. So that's basically what input one is for everyone. But servers have a second input for what we call the common good, meaning they can look from side to side and they can see if other people are getting enough food to eat or clothing or shelter or their rights are being respected. And they're always trying to integrate their, their current reality with the common good. That's their focus. That's how they inspire. And so they're, they're nurturing. They want to take care of other people. Uh, in earlier stages on the physical plane, servers, and Emika is a server, yeah, we'll, focus that, <laughs> <laughs> we'll focus that more on uh, the physical necessities of life. Uh, servers make terrific parents and grandparents because they're you know, cooking for you, taking care of you, giving you back rub, etc. But uh, when the servers get to be older souls, they might start to shift their focus to... Uh, nurturing you in more psychological ways, like, you know, I'm listening to your problems, I'm counseling you, I'm your social worker, etc. But they, that second input being for the common good tells you what their basic nature is. So that's a sort of a horizontal way of looking at the world, or you're looking from side to side and seeing what people's needs are. Uh, priests have a second input for the higher good, so it's vertical. They're looking up. And they're saying, what's the big picture here? How can I bring this down into uh, current reality? 
So the priests are the people who are looking after your spiritual well-being. How can you get healed? How can you be on your mission in life? How can you be happy? How can you connect with your guides, perhaps, if they believe in that? Or if they're into politics, um, how, how can we find a leader who will make our lives better, etc.? So the soul has these different constructions. And just that one piece of knowledge explains so much about people's behavior. So that is, that's the foundation of the seven different soul types. We also can see from the Michael chart that a lot of the traits on the chart fall on one of four axes, which are the inspiration axis. Inspiration has to do with your inner world. The expression axis, which has to do with expressing what is in the inner world into the outer world. And the action axis, which is about the outer world, purely about the outer world. And then off to the side, we have the assimilation axis, which is neutral. It's sort of like the library. And it provides a resource for the other three axes. So we start with inside and bringing what is inside out, which is expression, and action, which is the outer world. And so if we look at which axis the role sits on, we immediately know a lot about the basic nature of that trait. So when you look at a server or a priest, you see a soul who is more concerned about the inner world. That's where they live. And so servers and priests need to inspire others, and they need to feel inspired or they languish. Now, it's pretty easy for servers to inspire because servers can inspire in any situation. You can always be helpful. And so it's easier for servers to fulfill themselves, and therefore servers grow the fastest of all the roles. Priests need to inspire people to their higher good, and that can be harder to come by. They need people to accept their inspiration, and they only want to inspire in certain ways. So if their highest good is to get people to quit smoking, and they're on their soapbox trying to get people to quit smoking, and people don't want to quit smoking, then they can get very discouraged. But very important, really, for both roles to keep themselves inspired, and that could be by going out in nature, that could be through a spiritual practice, it could be by reading inspirational texts. It's whatever you find inspiring. So uh, it doesn't have to be something that would be uh, on the uh, bookshelf in a bookstore under inspiration. But if you find it inspiring, uh, it will nourish you, and that's your food. You've, you've got to have it. So the expression axis roles have to express themselves or they languish. Again, a little easier for the artisan because the ordinal roles, ordinals are people who work with the details of life. They're more, they have a narrower focus. It's easier because artisans can always create. They can make a nice meal. They can uh, work with their hands. They can sew. They can knit. They can garden, etc. There's a lot of things open to them. But if you run across an unhappy artisan, uh, the first thing to, to suggest to them is, hey, have you been doing anything that you find to be creative? It doesn't, again, have to be in the arts and crafts, but it might be. And so sometimes all it takes for an artisan to feel happy is 
take up a hobby and, and you know start painting or something like that. You've got to have a creative outlet, however you define that. It's a little harder for stages because stages need an audience. Uh, when I was a kid, I wanted to be an actor and a singer, and I was totally at the mercy of the directors. Would they give me the part that I wanted? Would they let me express myself? And a stage who doesn't get to express himself will languish. So now I get to express myself by teaching the Michael material. And I get to express myself now because you guys have offered to interview me for this podcast. So I'm a happy camper. I get to be heard by others. And I get to do my job, which is to communicate insights. It's a little different from scholar souls. Joseph is a scholar. Scholars love knowledge, and it tends to lean more towards pure information. Sages love information, but we are mainly interested in insight, meaning why. Why is it this way? And anything I'm saying about sages here or any of the rules will apply to you if it's also a strong secondary on your chart. It'll just not be the most dominant thing. So, you know, uh, I'm curious, like I'm, I'm in a, in a Bennett fourth way group. And, um, one of the ideas that at least that is really central to my sensibility around inner work is, you know, Gurdjieff's statement that we're not, we're not born with a soul that was to make one. And so from the point of view of, uh, the Michael teachings where it talks about soul and soul making choices and then. Uh, I guess Michael being some kind of collection of souls that are uh, a cadre of souls or something like that. How do you see any kind of parallel or or uh, connection there or disparity? Yes, well, the Michael teachings disagrees with uh, fourth way teachings in some core respects. I mentioned that Sir Chambers, the first Michael channel, had been a member of Robert Burton's group. Mm-hmm. And when she first started channeling, incorporated uh, three of those concepts that she had learned into the Michael teachings, but immediately Michael started revising them and saying, okay, we know you think of essence this way, but we're going to redefine it. So they did a lot of redefining, but they started with those terms because the people in the group were familiar with them. So they were going from the known to the unknown. It's not unlike what happens with composers. So uh, you have like um, Beethoven following in the, the, the footsteps of Bach, taking uh, the fundamentals of composition as were learned from Bach's time, but then changing them, moving them forward, advancing them. So yes, I, I'm a little aware of the fourth way teachings, and I'm a little bit aware that in Gurdjieff and teachings, essence is uh, not what Michael teaches as being the eternal soul that is at other lifetimes. I have to assume that Gurdjieff just didn't have access to that information at the time, and so he interpreted uh, things differently. But yes, the Michael teachings starts from the premise that the core of us is eternal, that we've had many lifetimes, in fact, that most of us have been on other planets playing this game before this one. Um, And so essence is a much bigger thing in the Michael teaching than uh, in Gurdjieff. And no, you don't create your soul. Um, But then also in all spiritual and metaphysical teachings, 
you will find different definitions for words like soul. Right. And so whenever you talk to anyone with any teaching, uh, you can get into arguments with them about things if you do not first ask them, well, how are you defining this right. word? And then I could talk to you. So building off that, like, I mean, this might seem like a dumb question, but uh, why do these things call themselves Michael and why do they give a shit about what happens to humans? And then second part of that is uh, do people who are in de- don't have any connection to Sarah Chambers or your, your I guess, lineage, do they also channel Michael? Like, I'm curious about what channeling, like, the experience of it is. And, you know, you spoke to, spoke of, um, you know, an automatic writing, but is it sort of, like, what what comes to me is sort of, uh, like, the Hollywood version of, like, a seance where you sort of see people being, like, spirit, tell me, tell me what you're seeing. And there's a, there's a kind of a, there's a sort of an interpretation or or bridging a gap or trying to uh, clarify messages. And so I'm curious about sort of all that territory. Yeah, those are real big questions. If, if I don't cover all of it at the end, then remind me of what I missed. But um, virtually everyone I know of who has started channeling, uh, one of their first questions is, is, well, what's your name? And mm-hmm. beings who are not physical don't have names, they don't need names, because when you meet another being, their unique energy signature is so distinct and overwhelming that you you just tune into them directly. There's direct, mm-hmm. uh, you might say, spiritual intercourse. So almost universally, the entity will say something like, oh, well, we don't have a name, or uh, and then they'll demand one. We'll say, "What if we want to talk to you again?" And we don't want to get that other entity. We want to get you, you know. So mm. then they'll say something like, "Well, you can call us," you know, and and maybe they'll pick something that sounds, you know, very um, flowing and spiritual and uplifting or something. Michael, though, uh, said, "Well, we're a group of a thousand fifty souls who are uh, reuniting on the causal plane, and." The last member of our group in his last lifetime to finish the physical plane had a name that is something like Michael in English. So you can just call us Michael. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, 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 if it were up to me, I would pick out something different. Because <laughs> when you say the... You say the Michael teachings. I mean, it's like, I mean, who names a body of teachings after, you know, a guy's first name, you know? <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, 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 but, yeah. Th- but that's, that's what they did. So uh, what does Michael get out of it? Well, one great thing that we come to understand uh, through a deep study of metaphysics is that um, there is so much more present in every single moment that most of us have no idea about. So right in this very moment, it's already eternity and infinity. Just right now, we're already in it. We, we don't have to get to eternity by dying. We're already in the middle of eternity, and we're already in the middle of infinity, and we are already living in a seven-plane universe. And beings on all the other planes of existence are here. They're they're here, and they're part of the ecology. And if they were not here, we would all just drop dead immediately. Nothing would work. It's it's just we just don't see it or know about it. And the main reason is is that we have these dense 
limited brains that would blow a fuse if it could see and be aware of all the stuff that's present here. But all these beings that we can uh, summarize by saying that they are in spirit are constantly in communication with us on different levels and help make the whole thing work. And so it's not only when a causal entity is being channeled that they're having some impact on our lives. This, none of this would be possible if it weren't for all of our loved ones who are uh, in spirit. So Michael is, as I mentioned, on the causal plane, which is intellectual, and they grow in part through teaching us on the physical plane. And in fact, they also teach a lot of us when we're between lifetimes on the astral plane. You know how if you really want to learn something well, you should try teaching it. Well, that's mm -hmm. what they're doing. They're teaching it. And uh, they love being channeled, or they wouldn't do it. I mean, it's not the majority of how they spend their, quote, time. They're doing a lot of other things. But it is one of the things that they do. A lot of people are channeling without knowing that they're channeling. When people say they're in the zone, they're uh, above their ego, and they're letting themselves be in contact with the larger universe. And they, for example, you know, a great dancer might be channeling energies and dance um, by opening up to spirit. And they just feel like it's a wonderful experience, but they wouldn't say that they were channeling. Or, um, you know, when, when music flowed out of Mozart effortlessly, I'm not saying he had nothing to do with it as a composer, but he was probably collaborating with other gifted musicians who were non-physical. And artists, of course, or really any part of life. You know, there are people who um, will hear a voice in their head, like uh, they're driving and they hear a voice screaming in their ear, uh, change lanes or put on mm -hmm. the brakes or something, they do it. I mean, these are our loved ones in the non-physical realms who are an intrinsic part of our lives. So the reason that we need channeling at all is because human consciousness at this time is so coarse and dense. I think mm -hmm. the natural state for humans in a more elevated uh, state of consciousness would be where we were all at least somewhat aware of the higher beings that are present with us. And we, we were aware of that we are befriended by many beings who aren't here with us. And so, you know, uh, we're in Kaliuga or whatever. Shit is really dark. Uh, so is some of what the Michael teaching is trying to communicate is that when we're out of sync with our role, then that's where a lot of our trouble starts? Or what is the relationship between why uh, Michael or whatever would be trying to communicate this particular information uh, to human beings? Many of the traits in your Michael chart have positive poles, which is where the energy is being expressed in a clean, clear, accurate way without distortion, mm. with a loving intention in a positive way. And the negative pole, where that very same energy gets distorted because we're afraid, because uh, uh, we're blocked in some way. And so when a person is in what we call false personality, they are living more in their negative pole. And that's what we call ego. 
ego literally just means self. So there's a true ego, a love-based ego, and a uh, false ego, which is the fear-based ego. But most of the time when people say he has a big ego, they mean they have a big false personality. Mm-hmm. And so when you study the Michael teachings, its most important role in your life is to give you vocabulary to show you what your strengths and your pitfalls are so that you can photograph it when you, like if you're being in the negative pole of your role and you have that word for it that describes it, you know what that looks and feels like. You can The light bulb can go on in your mind and you can say, oops, better get myself back in the positive pole because the negative poles do not feel good. They do not make us happy. And yet there's so much negativity in the world that it's very easy to get pulled into them. There's one specific item on the chart called the chief obstacle, and in Gertschiff in terms, it's called the chief feature, mm-hmm. um, which is always negative, but the negative pole is more negative manifestation of that. And the chief obstacle tells us where our fears tend to congregate. And so probably the most important tool for your personal growth anywhere on the Michael chart is to learn to recognize when your chief obstacle is in charge and then you're making a choice to not let it be in charge. My chief Very obstacle is, is arrogance, but I'm, I'm never arrogant. <laughs> I'm joking. So <laughs> ask, ask all your friends if they agree with your assessment here. We all Every, disagree unanimously with that statement. We all disagree. Everybody agrees with me. Disagree. <laughs> <laughs> well, And each of these obstacles is defined in a quite specific way. There are people who have an obstacle of arrogance who do not appear stereotypically arrogant, but they share the obstacle of underlying fear. And the underlying fear of arrogance is a fear of being judged by others and being found wanting. And it's also defined as a fear of vulnerability. And so the stereotypically arrogant person acts conceited. And the strategy behind that is, well, if I act like I'm better than other people, like I'm putting myself above them, maybe they won't dare to shoot me down. But that often backfires because some people are going to really want to shoot you down when you're doing that. Um, But there are people who have that same fear who um, handle it differently. And their strategy is, well, if I'm just perfect and I don't make any mistakes and I catch all my mistakes before anyone else does and I'm just super careful and super self-conscious, then no one will judge me. And so you might not think that they were particularly arrogant. Uh, And then there are the people who have the same fear and they strategize by saying, "Um, I'm just going to hide out from everyone. And then they won't be able to uh, attack me. And that's called being shy. Mm -hmm. So we're really more interested on the Michael chart in what the underlying energies and motivations are and less about behaviors. Specific behaviors may be a clue to a particular trait, but one behavior could have several possible explanations on or off the Michael chart. So we don't just go by behaviors with anything. Mm-hmm. So not everyone who is a leader is a king's soul. Not everyone who is blunt is a warrior soul. Not everyone who likes to learn is a scholar soul, so forth. We have to look at what the underlying energies uh, are like. And this is part of the reason the Michael teachings 
have not caught on as widely as I think they should because um, it is subtle and there's a lot to learn. There's a lot of complexity to it. You don't master the Michael teachings very quickly. Mm -hmm. So um, one thing that we noticed as we were getting charts back is there's there tends to be a predominance of certain roles in certain groups or families, and we eventually talked about how that may play out in cultures. And so uh, why do you think that is that you might end up seeing a group that is dominated by, uh, let's say, our expression roles or, um, you know, like, what does that say about the culture of a group or how that might impact the way uh, a group of people or a family or a culture does its thing? I was saying earlier um, that one of the platitudes of the Michael teachings is choice. And basically, you as an individual soul can do anything you want to do in the universe if you can make it happen. And so uh, people are together by choice. Uh, and um, birds of a feather sometimes do flock together. So you're talking about the military. You're going to see a lot of warriors because they like the military. The same thing on the police department. You're going to see a lot of warriors. And, you know, artisans and, and sages love hanging out together because they're playful and they love to play together. They make great playmates and they're fun. <laughs> and it's fun to be around other people who are expressing themselves because it gives you the freedom to express yourself. And, you know, everyone in a family has, has chosen to be together. Um, but you can't make any rules about it because there are, you know, certainly families with a, a wide range of roles represented. And then I've seen families where almost everyone's a scholar, you know, it's just scholars like, like the company of other scholars. Like Joseph's family. Yeah, my whole family <laughs> the is a scholar. Mom, dad. Yeah, yeah you're the scholar family. Yeah. If scholars make very good companions to each other because they can go on and on and on and on about a subject that would bore everybody else, but the other scholars don't mind. They find it often equally interesting. And they make excellent traveling companions because they're, they're, they're both going to be interested in the history of the place and seeing obscure places the normal tourists don't want to go to, et cetera. So, yeah, there, there can be... Um, these uh, these shared interests, but again, no rules. There really are not a lot of true rules in the universe. It's free will. On that note, Joseph, you had a question about uh, Scholar and the different centers and how that might show up. Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess it's not a super specific uh, question, but I'm just trying to do a little bit of, I'm just trying to learn a little bit more about Scholar because it's my role and I, I have a lot around me and I guess I was raised by Scholars, but my parent, like I'm intellectual moving, and my parents are both physical emotional, um, which you would assume like is not kind of the typical scholarly thing that you'd expect. And right. I'm just wondering with a role like scholar or any of the roles, but because it is sort of um, in a sense that like it's it's a neutral kind of role. Um, does something like the centering or the essence twin um, affect the say manifestation or expression of that role energy more so than the others does that make sense uh, absolutely yeah so we say that scholar the scholar role is neutral uh the assimilation axis which is the far right hand column of the chart the whole thing's neutral 
and assimilation itself is neutral. And because it's a neutral role, uh, everything else on the chart that would add colorings will show up especially strongly. So a scholar with okay. a discarnate king essence twin like you is going to look a lot different than a scholar with a discarnate artisan or sage essence twin because the scholar energy itself is neutral. It's like uh, if you have white walls in your house and then you have an accent wall that's right. red, uh, that accent really shows up against the white and it's very different than if the accent wall is blue. Now, the centering, in, in terms of the Michael teachings, we all have seven centers, but we have one that is our predominant one. We either react to things that happen in the world through our body, our intellect, or our emotions. And scholars often like to choose intellectual centering, but scholars being assimilative, they can assimilate emotional experiences and physical experiences too. So even though the, the stereotype of the scholar is the bookish person, and, and I think all scholars love books and knowledge, an emotionally centered scholar will have a lifetime that's less focused on the intellect and more focused on maybe music or the arts or nature or relationships. And sometimes those lifetimes are difficult for the scholar because they've had so many lifetimes where they were intellectually centered and cut off from their emotions. So maybe now they're taking their medicine and saying, look, I'm, I'm getting way out of balance here. I need to be better emotionally developed. And yet they may have some struggles with dealing with emotion. Or uh, the scholars who choose to be body-centered in a particular lifetime, they're going to be more looking to assimilate physical experiences. They're going to be looking to travel more, although I think most scholars love traveling. But uh, maybe they're going to be having experiences um, and growth through sex. So um, you find a lot of prostitutes who are physically centered scholars. That's me right there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a scholar physical. So I'm, that makes yeah. so I'm a prostitute. Sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So how's that working for you? <laughs> it's working out pretty well. I like it a lot. I like it a lot. <laughs> Every, everybody's invited to the party. <laughs> one, one thing that I, I noticed uh, talking to David about his chart as um, a scholar, and he's working on a book he's getting ready to publish of his uh, wild David ideas. And he's got a very unique writing style, which what he's trying to do is trying to take an idea and put it into your sensual experience in the body. And I don't think I fully really understood that because I used to think it was just like um, from an Enneagram standpoint, like an instinctual drive of the self-pres instinct. But I recognize that some self-pres types don't write that way. And so the physical centering uh, is describing something about, you know, him as a scholar trying to deliver like a system of knowledge, but doing that from the framework of sensuality. And it's something that's very specific to the physical centering that uh, I find really, really interesting. Yeah, uh, beautiful. I mean, this is this is adding a lot of layers on top of the Enneagram. Yeah, yeah. There were a lot of things for me that I just didn't understand um, from a centering standpoint because I'm a body type and David's a body, body type. Uh, like, you know, for example, why, why are certain eights more intellectual than others? 
So it just filled in some blanks of things that I just couldn't make sense of from an Enneagram standpoint. Yeah, you know, if you combine a bunch of different systems together, you're going to get a more complete reading. So if you have your Michael chart, if you have a good astrological interpretation of your birth chart, if you know your numerology, if you have your Enneagram, you can put them all together. And I don't think you're ever going to find that they contradict each other. I think you're just going to find that they complement each other. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they do pull in different directions from each other. But um, you'll be able to see their representation uh, in your life. Yeah. J David is a great example because he's, he's kind of a um, unique character. And there's no real easy way to describe that from an Enneagram standpoint, like how fucking weird <laughs> David is. <laughs> but what I found really interesting looking, you know, me and David had a call about his chart and how um, the sort of split between David as a sort of a, you know, spiritualist archetypal thinker who's coming at it from a very central kind of writing style and this kind of hardcore on the ground, hands-on business guy who is really attracted to the, the challenge of trying to make something happen in the oil business or in, you know, all kinds of really difficult uh in businesses that where you're importing like precious metals and things like that, like those two worlds or sides of David don't kind of like, don't really make sense, but you can see it in his chart. Yeah. David, we, we talked about this. So is there anything that kind of jumped Plus, out at you? Well, part you were just talking about then brings up the chief obstacle. Oh yeah. Not, <laughs> mine is, mine is greed, right? So, <laughs> <there it is. laughs> and which, which totally rung a bell and, I'm glad to claim. Oh, really? Did it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hardcore. Shocking. Uh, what uh, would, Shepard, what would you say about greed? Greed is defined as the fear of lack or uh, loss. And the feeling of it is that there is a hole inside of you that you keep trying to fill and nothing will fill it. Now, the, a typical way that this develops in the personality is that your parents didn't give you love directly, but let's say if the parent fed you and food was the only um, indirect expression of love, then you will fixate on food um, to try to fill the hole. Only it doesn't work because food isn't love, it's just food. But um, the chief obstacles are neurotic repetitive patterns where we keep trying to solve a problem in a way that it's not going to get solved. And so greed will tend to be fixated on particular areas. Uh, it's not necessarily food. It's not necessarily sex. It's not necessarily alcohol. It's not necessarily uh, attention. It could be a combination of those. It could be whatever represents love to you. But if you want to validate uh, this obstacle, then all you have to do is look at do I have a chronic feeling of a hole inside me that nothing seems to fill? And if you have that feeling, then that is what the obstacle means. And so the way to heal that is to start to connect with a sense of the universe as a place of abundance and where love is 
an eternal reality, and that in fact love is our very nature, that as adults we're not dependent on other people to give us love, but that we can wake up to our eternal reality as being love and feel that sometimes in meditation by opening to that. And therefore we no longer need to fixate on specific symbols of love. So yeah, just affirmations of abundance can be be really good for that. Practicing giving. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah if you're generous to other people, then it's flowing through you. Mm-hmm. When you give mm-hmm. love to other people and and experience generosity, then you feel fulfilled from within. <clears throat> so that that is an excellent uh, uh, approach to healing that. My questions are all kind of like about the combinations. You know, kind of like what we're doing already here. Yeah. In terms of like, <clears throat> yeah, like. I mean, and also just sort of how to prioritize, and I know that's probably complex, those are complex questions, but like, you know, looking at my chart, I've got a scholar role and essence twin artisan, and the casting is warrior. Um, Like just looking at those sort of top three, um, how do you prioritize them and you know, are there is are two out of those three kind of the more important and the third is less, or how do you work that? Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that even longtime Michael students um, aren't necessarily good at, which is interpreting the chart as a whole. And it's incredibly mm. important because if you don't have that, you will fasten on one thing and you say, well, I can't possibly be this or have this overleaf, but they're not looking at the rest of the chart. So, yeah, I'd be happy to do that with you. Um, Your essence twin is your twin soul or your twin flame. When your essence twin is in a body as yours is, yours is a male that you do not plan to meet, you do not get a lot of that soul's energy because they're busy living their own life. When they're discarnate, meaning they're not in the body right now, you get a much higher amount of what we call bleed through because they're almost living in your vest pocket. And some of their energy combines with yours. So at this moment, you do not have a lot of artisan bleed through, and artisan therefore is not an important secondary trait for you. The caveat is is that we do not know when this artisan was born. And if this artisan was just born uh, the month before I channeled your chart, uh, you might have grown up your whole life with a lot of artisan bleed through, and that's just going to be really strongly imprinted into you. On the other hand, if you have a discarnate essence twin, but they just died last month, um, you suddenly have all this bleed through that you didn't have before, and people might see that as a change in your personality. So where we look on your chart for secondary influences is in your casting. And your casting is line three. It says casting, cadence position three, cadence three, and greater cadence one. Three, three, one. Three is the warrior number. And it is doubled. So you have double warrior casting. But not only that, you're in the first greater cadence, which just underlines those other threes. So it's almost as if it were 3-3-3. It's very, very strong warrior casting. And people could easily mistake you for being a warrior and not a scholar. Another reason for that, you have physical centering. 
Physical centering is the warrior position center. If you look down the chart, uh, it's the column, and at the top of the column is warrior, and on the center line is physical. So you have the warrior centering and double warrior casting. Um, you also have the king goal, which is dominance, and kings and warriors are similar because of the two action axis roles. And so you are. In the, at this time, you have very, very strong action axis traits. And that's where the business thing comes in. Because um, the business world is not replete with scholars. It's more a warrior thing. Warriors are the archetype of the, of the entrepreneur, the aggressive businessman, the guy who wants to win, um, uh, full of energy, that sort of thing. And so this is where uh, that comes from. In your life, also, a uh, goal of dominance means leadership that is not typical of the scholar, but is more typical of the king or the warrior. So real quick, um, I think a lot of people are going to be curious about this because it is it is one of the more complicated aspects of Michael teachings is what is, can you talk a little bit more about casting and in how people should look at the casting in relation to their goal and what it really means and what the significance of it is. Yeah, casting is actually pretty simple, but it is the part of the Michael chart that makes the most people eyes cross. It's like as soon as you start talking about numbers, all of their uh, trauma from math class in school <laughs> comes back to them and they just freeze and freak out and they say, I can't understand this. This is too difficult. But it really is not advanced mathematics. These are not algebraic or calculus equations. Um, it is simply this. Let's use David's chart as an example. David, as a scholar, is in the third position in his group of seven scholars. So we would say he is a warrior caste scholar. Of the seven scholars in his cadence, which is simply seven souls, it's your sort of basic unit of souls in your soul family. The smallest grouping that you are permanently a part of is your cadence. And they're almost always the same role. So seven scholars, you number off one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and you're in the third position. So out of those seven, you are the scholar who is the most warrior-like. That means you're going to use your scholar knowledge. Scholars emphasize knowledge, love knowledge, collect knowledge. You're going to use that in the warrior domain, which is business, law enforcement, the military. It's practicality. It's usefulness. It's what's down to earth. And so the type of knowledge that you're going to always go for David, is knowledge that people can use in their down-to-earth life. You want it to be useful, you want it to be practical, and you want to convey that knowledge to other people in ways that they can actually use it, because warriors are all about what you can do in the world. Make sense? Yeah, and let me ask you this, and how, how much weight and how does it modify things getting into the overleaves part where I've got spiritualist attitude and passion as a mode what uh what does that start to look like as far as the combination of all of that warrior stuff 
when we interpret the chart as a whole, uh, we first want to look at what reinforces things and what pulls in a different direction. So I already talked about what reinforced your action axis stuff. Here you have uh, two overleaps or personality traits, the spiritualist attitude and the passion mode, which resonate with the role of priest and are very different from the uh, warrior influence. And so they bring in new traits. But these are on the personality level. So although they are important and true of David Gray in this current lifetime, in another lifetime, they may not be on the chart. And so you could be very different in a different lifetime depending on different overleaves. But the overleaves are called overleaves because they overlay, they lay on top of your essence. Mm. The top half of your chart, the fact that you are a double warrior cast scholar, this will never change as long as you are a human on Earth. You will always, in every lifetime, be a double warrior cast scholar. That's a great uh, distinction to make because that's one of the things that I like about Michael teaches it's making the distinction between essence and personality. So what you're yeah. saying is the, the the bottom half of the chart is explaining the personality layer of this lifetime and the essence part of the chart, which is talking about the role and the casting, is talking about like your essence characteristics, right? Right, yes. Everything on the top half of the chart is true of you in every lifetime on Earth. And if you wanted a chart of you in a past lifetime, we'd leave the top half the same. The bottom half could change. You could have some similarities. It's up to you, whatever you chose. Uh, so the top half of the chart is true of every lifetime on Earth, but you said there were other planets that we can go. So does that change if we go somewhere else? Yes, but um, it happens sequentially. So you're not going to pick another planet until you're done with Earth. Just like if you're oh. uh, taking a trip around the world, um, you're not going to go to Spain until you're done with France. You're not going to mm. go to France until you're done with Spain. Um, I mean, it, using that analogy, of course, you right. could go back and forth. But it's more practical mm -hmm. in terms of your travel plans to you know, see France and then see Spain rather than going back and forth all the time. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. So you wanted to talk about the next part of the casting? Right. So the most important part of your casting is your cadence position, which in David's case is a three, and we call that your primary casting. So you're in the third position out of your seven scholars. But then your whole cadence, your group of seven scholars, is also in a position in a group of seven cadences, which is 49. So if you can imagine a group of seven, and then if you can imagine uh, seven sevens, 49, just line them up in a row, you would see your group of seven also in a number three position. That's why it's doubled for you. And this number threeness is not only true of you, but it's true of all seven of you in your cadence. And so everyone in your cadence has secondary warrior casting. And although this isn't quite as strong or pronounced as your primary casting, it's still important. And most of you don't have the same number here. So, um, Nancy, you're also third in your cadence, 
but your cadence is in the seventh position, and that's seven's the king number. You can see on the chart each of the rolls have a number associated with them, and seven is king. King is also action axis, so your casting, like David's, resonates with the action axis, but in your case it adds some king qualities to your warrior qualities. And the number in this position is what stands out about you to friends and family. So the first number is where you direct your energies, and the second number is what stands out about you from a little farther away, from people who are close to you, but they, they see you in action pretty well. And so, Nancy, people are going to notice some kingly things about you, even though you're an artist, and they're going to think of you as um, a good leader and a good organizer and maybe a little bit of a sharp tongue to you at times. Uh, and you also have a discarnate king essence twin, so you are almost an honorary king. Your most important secondary influences are king essence twin, warrior casting, and king secondary casting. So you are an honorary member of the action axis. This is a very strong secondary for you. Now, John, your second number is the one. You also have warrior primary casting, so there's a little bit of a theme in this group. But your secondary <laughs> casting is server. So friends and family uh, may notice some service-oriented qualities uh, in you. They might notice that, that you want to take care of people's uh, needs as you see them, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, me and John so, have a competition about who's lined it or who's, uh, we call it da Daddy John. Who's <laughs> 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 more daddy? Yeah, because whenever we hang out and John's always checking on, you know, are you okay? Are you, do you have everything you need? And I've got a little bit of that too. <laughs> I love it. I love where is, it. Yeah, where is that, where is that in the chart um, on John's, looking at John's, where is it? Say okay, sir. so it's right in the middle of the third line. So the third line is called casting. The first number is your oh, yeah. primary casting cadence position. And then the cadence itself is first in his group of seven cadences. And so that's where that number comes in. So we, we envisioned 49 souls. And then you could imagine strings of 49 souls. So you could imagine 49 and 49 and 49. But in this case, it doesn't have to be seven of them. It could be one, it could be eight, it could be four, whatever. This is the weakest number in your casting. But I put it on the chart because I want to see what it does to the other numbers. So in David's case, the fact that it was a one, it tells me it is underlining his warrior primary and secondary casting. If it's a completely different number, then uh, it's not such an issue. So for John, yours is four, that scholar. It's a minor influence. It's not reinforcing your role or your essence twin role or your other casting numbers or really much else on your chart. So we're going to say that's not super important for you. Why does one or the server casting reinforce the other uh the, what comes after it because I, I don't think people really well understand. just because it just pushes it to the front it's like the first place in, in it, like in david's case it's the first place in his group of scholars which could be uh 49 uh, one group of 49 or it could be 
12 groups of 49, but it's the first place in that group of scholars where someone has 3-3 casting. So it's pushed mm -hmm. to the front, and it just makes it reinforced. It just makes it stronger, in addition to having a little bit of the server quality also. Right. But because we're not seeing other server uh, traits on David's chart, uh, we're going to say that that server flavoring is not so important. What's really important for David here is is underlining double warrior casting, making it almost triple warrior casting, meaning that someone who didn't know your chart but knows the Michael teachings, they might be convinced that you're really just a warrior and that the channeling was wrong because they're not looking at the whole chart. Whatever comes first leads the way. It's this divine paradox that we have in the Michael teachings is that server is the most ordinal role. By uh, ordinal, we mean the most focused on the details of life, the most concrete, the most down-to-earth. Uh, the server role, people tend to like uh, dealing with a few people and having uh, a few really close relationships. And then as we move up the numbers, one through seven, the roles become in, uh, increasingly cardinal. So artisan is ordinal, but a little less ordinal than servers. Uh, warriors are ordinal, but the least ordinal of the three ordinal roles. And scholars are neutral. They're not ordinal or cardinal. They're, they're in the middle. And then sages are cardinal, but they're the least cardinal of the three. It's the number five role. Uh, priest is the number six role, the second most cardinal, and kings are the most cardinal of the roles. So kings tend to know the most people, have the largest sphere of influence, be the biggest picture kind of, kind of people. But when it comes to the numbers that resonate with those roles, it completely reverses. So server is the number one role, but the number one is the most cardinal position because it's first. It leads the way. And so when you have number one casting, it has the flavor of the server, but it's the most cardinal number. And so this is a way that you get to experience both sides of every role energy. So, uh, for example, I'm a sage, which is cardinal, but I also have sage casting, which is ordinal. So I can do sage things in both a cardinal and an ordinal way. And warrior casting is cardinal, but the, ordinal, the warrior role is ordinal. So, David, you have a cardinal casting, which means that you as a scholar like to do warrior things in a big way. Whereas if you were actually a warrior, you would want to do warrior things in a small way. You would want to dig the ditch. But with warrior casting, you might form a business that gets 10,000 people to dig the ditch. It's still the warrior productivity, but it's a big picture. Or start yep. a bunch of hell online. Yes. That's, yeah. that's one of the things about David that people don't understand is like, how is this, you know, kind of chill low-key person like david is well known for decades of being on enneagram forums and being the most noticeable loudest con you know contentious person that generates the most drama and you there wasn't anything about his enneagram type that would really clue you into why that was happening but you know looking at his chart and having having double warrior casting he has a large footprint online and it's like it's all there yeah. 
Yeah, well, David, you also have the goal of dominance, which is a negative goal of dictatorship. You have a martial yes. body type, and marshals can be explosive. Uh, it's king position uh, body type, and they can be feisty. And uh, Saturnian secondary is also a masculine body type. And let me add that um, although warriors are famous for being iconoclastic for liking to disrupt things, liking to um, smash people's illusions, that sort of thing. I will also say that not every part of your behavior can be explained by your Michael chart. So I would also consult an astrologer and see if there's something in your birth chart that also accounts for uh, liking to be disruptive online, because it's not all on your Michael chart. Right. Okay. Th this is uh, the thing that kind of got me into the Michael teachings to begin with, because I'm obsessed with attraction. And we just talked a little bit about uh, body types and shit like that. Um, can you talk, because you wrote a book, like there's, I, I'm, I felt like I was the only one in the new universe who's obsessed about attraction to the degree that I am. Until I read your book, you wrote a book <laughs> called Why We're Attracted which basically answered the lifelong quest that I've been, you know. Ah, this is, this is where Mike, this is where Annika gets me. <laughs> <laughs> Everything this is, is explained now. This is what sucked me into the system because for once I, I had uh, uh, a sort of a, a model of why, a very, very visceral model for why uh, people were into certain, the archetype or the map of uh, people's attractions for each other. And so in your book, uh, the take the biggest takeaway is that the, there are different attraction polarities between these essence roles and the body types, which you know the essence roles and the body types basically map out how we look. You know, the the body type is a container, and the role is sort of the energy. And so, can you talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, yeah. It's it's funny we found each other because no one was talking about the Michael charts in terms of attraction. And I was also really fascinated and curious about it and was trying to figure a lot of that out myself for, for a long time. So we do know from the earliest Michael channelings that certain roles more frequently pair off. Now, the soul seeks new experiences, seeks variety. And so you could not say that scholars will always, for example, mate with warriors. But it is a real common combination. There are a couple of different reasons different soul types are attracted to each other. I mentioned that each of the roles are assigned a number one through seven, from the most ordinal to the most cardinal. When the combination of two roles adds up to seven, there is an innate attraction. Scholar is number four, and warriors are number three. Adds up to seven. Sage is five. Artisan is two. Adds up to seven. Priest is six. Server is one. Adds up to seven. That is one force of attraction, and it can be very compelling. King is already seven, and so they're going to get the most attraction with servers because they're one, and, and that's as close as they're going to get to adding up uh, to seven plus Servers like to serve kings, and, and kings feel very nurtured by servers, and it works out great for them. Kings will also get along well with warriors, even though they don't add up to seven or eight, because they share the action axis. And warriors love to 
know, a warrior who's had that when she's in the presence of someone who is truly a king, she wants to kneel before the king. There's just this galvanizing energy that king has. That's how I am with Nancy. <laughs> I was just about to say that, David. Damn it. I was just about to be like, well, that explains a lot. Nancy is our king. <laughs> Suck um, my dick. <laughs> Gladly. <laughs> On his knees. No, yes, my king. Factor... <laughs> Yay. <laughs> another factor of attraction is that some roles will give you relief. Now, scholar is neutral. Not every scholar feels neutral because there are other things on the chart that can lend a lot of intensity to the scholar, but the scholar energy itself being four out of seven, it is neutral, it's in the middle, and scholars tend to have this neutral quality where they step back from things and they just observe, and uh, they can be rather unflappable and easygoing and easy to be around. And so the two most intense roles can find a lot of relief from being with scholars. One of them is warrior, and they already have that four plus three equals seven. So that is uh, a golden combination. But priests are the other intense role. They're intense in the high frequency, whereas warrior is intense in the low frequency. And you see a lot of priest and scholar uh, combinations. Now, I am a sage. I have a sage essence twin and sage primary casting. I have the sage goal of acceptance and the sage attitude of idealist. So I am an uber sage. And so that number fiveness is extremely strong with me. And I have an almost overwhelming attraction to artisans, not just romantically, but I just adore being around artisans as friends or whatever. It's very strong. So What's up, Shepard? Strength... <laughs> <laughs> <So adorable>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, the strength of the attraction will also depend on how intense or reinforced that particular trait already is on your chart. Now then if we move down to body type, you, uh, if you're familiar with the body type system, which um, was originally taught by a Gurdjieff student, and the, the, there's two books about body types that are from that lineage. Uh, the Michael system has some different ideas about the body types, so not everything agrees with what uh, you'll read in the body type books about it. But there is in common this idea that there is a progression of the body types, starting at lunar, which is sort of the least developed of the body types, and it moves around the circle until you uh, get to jovial, which is the most developed of the body types. So I think of jovial as being like an overstuffed chair, and uh, lunar as being like a deflated beanbag chair. And I have a lunar body type, so I, I'm not being insulting to anyone other than myself here. But um, I don't know. I'm jovial and I'm slightly insulted. So. <laughs> and of course, with the with, with the body types, you have a secondary. You might have a tertiary. Some people even have a, a fourth one, a quadrary. So uh, these modify each other, and it makes the the body type attraction thing not only a matter of your primary one, but also the secondaries. But um, 
the lunar and the jovials are considered to be the extremes because they're at the beginning and the end of this progression. And so the fact that I have the lunar body type makes me an extreme, and it makes me extremely attracted to my opposite, which is Saturnian. It's just huge for me because I'm at that extreme. And um, Jovial is attracted to Mercurial. If you look on the Michael chart, the attractions are whatever is the opposite one that shares the axis uh, with you. So Lunar goes to Saturnian, Jovial goes to Mercurial, Venusian goes to Marshall, and Solar goes to all of them because it's neutral. And so if you have body type attraction, um, you form an energetic circuit with that opposite. So I'll give you an example in my case, lunar. Lunar is a passive body type. It's attracted to Saturnian, which is active, their opposite. Lunar is the most feminine of the body types. It's attracted to Saturnian, which is the most masculine. Uh, masculine and feminine in body type means with the masculine body types, energy moves out. With the feminine body types, energy moves in. And then uh, lunar is the most negative charged body type. It's attracted to Saturnian, which is positive charged. A positive charged body type means the emphasis is on the outer world. It's sort of like you have the porch light on all the time illuminating the outer world, and it tends to make the positive types more sunny and positive in their disposition. Uh, lunars have more of an internal uh, focus, and so um, they're more focused on their feelings, they're the most sensitive, they tend to notice what's wrong with everything. So Lunar and Saturn are total opposites, and they have this magnetic attraction. It's, it's literally like putting two magnets together. And so if you look at any two charts, you can see if they have body type attraction. So if I look at your chart and you have Saturnian, even if it's not your primary, if it's your secondary or tertiary, we have some body type attraction. My secondary is Marshall. So if someone has a secondary of Venusian, we have body type attraction. And my third one is Venusian. So if they have some Marshall, then that's ideal. So for me, someone who is Saturnian, Venusian, Marshall in that order, would give me maximum body type attraction. That doesn't have to be max. doesn't have to be all three or even two. And so it means that your body feels stimulated by their body. If you're also sexually attracted to someone, which is not the same thing, uh, your sexual attractions are the types you like. But if that type you like also has your opposite body type, that's going to be really compelling for you. And if they happen to have the role that you're most attracted to, that's going to be even more compelling. And then we can go down the rest of the chart and we can find different overleaves and such that go well together or maybe don't go so well together. There's also body type repulsion. Uh, it's kind of surprising because Marshall and Mercurial look kind of similar. The only way they differ is Mercurial is feminine and Marshall is masculine. But they're both negative and they're both active. But they rub each other the wrong way. And so they do not attract. And um, if a person has mercurial marshal internally, that friction will make them really restless. 
Steve Nancy. Jobs had that. <laughs> yeah. So wait, Nancy. I have I have that. Yeah, makes you restless, right? So it's like it's just hard for you to sit still and be calm and enjoy your, uh, your life because mm-hmm. the body body types are rubbing against each other. And the good thing, so there's nothing good or bad on a chart, but the positive possible manifestation of that for you is that it keeps pushing you forward to be more creative, to find better solutions, to figure things out. But it's not comfortable. Now, jovial is your dominant body type, and that's real comfortable. So that's going to counterbalance that, and also jovial and mercurial are opposites, so they kind of cancel each other out to some degree. But if your primary were mercurial and your secondary were martial, without the jovial, it would make you very restless. Can I return my chart? (laughs) (laughs) I don't like it. Uh, Shepard, I had a question because I got jovial lunar for my body type. <laughs> and, I can hear the disgust in your voice right now. And, you know, like I have Suzanne, Z, starts with a Z, last name. It's the book Human Types. Human Types, yeah. And all the resources I've I've looked at, it suggests that uh, the jovial type is like fat <laughs> and... um. Yeah, just like a big energy that's also like passive and uh and John yeah, is not that he's fat, not that at all. That <laughs> bald and outgoing and <laughs> likes to be around people and you know it's all stuff that I really don't relate to. And then what I've read about lunar, it's like that they are um kind of nervous energy and all this stuff. And I relate to neither. And Emika has been trying to show me uh, a handful of skinny jovials, but every time every resource I've looked at, it's like the first thing you need to know that these are body types. They're very obvious in their appearance, and jovials are fat. And bald. Um, fat and bald and round. And even if they're skinny, they're round or something. Yeah. And so or they're too skinny. I am trying to understand how I am a jovial type and somehow uh, look like I look. Beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> How well, can least, he be a jovial type least, and be as attractive as he is? No, but at least, yeah, at I least, have that question. I'm not a th- like, yeah. Nancy and I are both slim, you know, like, <laughs> and and also like, uh, you know, uh, Emma goes pointing out like facial features are like me and like uh, Thom York or whatever his name is, and I can get that we'd be body types of a similar um, quality, but like. Yeah, however you say his name, but then, uh, like, but I don't see how that would be jovial. You know what I'm saying? I'm not trying. I'm not seeing the underlying structure. Yeah, I love this uh, discussion. I, I, in my chapter um, on body types in my book Journey of Your Soul, I mentioned how dismayed I was uh, by the books on body types because it sounded like it was absolutely horrible to have any of the body types. I mean, they just painted such a negative picture of all the body types. And um, it just sort of made you not want to have a body or trade it in or something. (laughs) But um, there can be thin and fat versions of every body type. And of course, now we live in this culture with this horrible standard American diet, garbage corporate food that so many are eating. And about, you know, half of all people are overweight now. Um, and yet you also uh, see slim versions of the passive body types like, like the two of you. So um, when you read things in books like that that say that all jovials are fat and bald and you think, oh, my God, this is not what I want, this is an example of something that I rail against constantly, which is this 
oversimplification, this lack of nuance, this lack of looking at how various traits interact with each other and then not seeing them as being uh, interacting energies, but seeing them as absolute. And a lot of these teachings get to be crystallized as a series of always, as nevers, uh, and absolutes that keep people from really uh, understanding. But I mean, I think the first thing to look at is uh, if you consider people that you've been really attracted to in the past, what were their body types? So, um, John, if you have been attracted to uh, people that had either mercurial, Saturnian, or a combination of the two on several occasions, that would be a good validation for you. Is that, is this something yeah, that... he, he has. He, he loves these mercurial bitches. Yes. That's all he <laughs> loves. <laughs> I love mercurial bitches. <laughs> but one thing I wanted to ask you, Shepard, because body type seems to be the most genetic aspect of this whole thing. Um, is that something that you think is the case? And does that sort of create kind of a a cycle of imprinting, for example? Like my dad thought my mom was hot and maybe they had a polarity in body type. And so maybe I was imprinted. Like I have, let's say my genetics, I, I took after my dad's body type, Saturn Marshall. and my mom has uh, like maybe an opposite body type and then maybe I was imprinted by my mother and I end up growing up and being attracted to the same sort of uh, opposite body type. Have you seen that become a thing where there's a genetic pattern in the body types and then which also kind of creates a cycle of attraction? That absolutely can happen. Now, um, going back to this idea of choice, when the soul is setting up a lifetime, it chooses body type, but it's limited to some degree by the genetic material. There are actually identical twins who have some differences in their body types. Mm. And so you can see how the soul has manipulated the same genetic material to pull out some traits more and to subdue some other traits. So, um, for example, I was close with a woman who was a twin, and um, she had more solar in her body type. And her, her twin had a lot more Venusian, which is a positive full of voluptuous. And her twin ended up, especially later in life, with much larger breasts than she had. Mm. So the soul creates the body type that it wants out of the genetic material up to uh, a, a certain degree. And, and if the soul can't get the body type it wants, uh, it may just pass on the body and you know, wait till it can get one that's more to its liking. But yes, so if you take after your father and your father had that body type, uh, you're going to have the same body type attractions. But what if your father married someone more out of role attraction than body type attraction? Then mm -hmm. it may not be uh, the case with you. Or, you know, people get together for a lot of different reasons. If they have karma with each other, that karma can easily be mistaken for attraction because it's so fiery and intense and powerful that it can be really ugly too. And then once the karma is repaid, maybe they abuse each other or one abuses the other, whatever, the karma is repaid. And then suddenly the person is left with thinking, what on earth did I see in that person? Well, it was karma. It wasn't body type attraction. It wasn't role attraction. It was payback. 
Hmm. So, I mean, these things are uh, complex, and really the only way that I know of to know for sure what was the case in any particular situation is to get channeling about it, but, you know, you might be able to intuit it as well. Have you noticed anything with uh, attraction playing out with the casting placements? Like, that doesn't necessarily fall in line with the uh, role attraction polarities. Like, for example, Joseph is a scholar role, but he's artisan cast, and he tends to uh, attract some artisans. And I um, have sage casting. I don't have any. I don't have any artisan, but I'm. I've had a few sages, it seems, or that seems to be a common thing. Does that play out at all, or is that just a sort of like a random? You're just attracted to that role for whatever reason. I don't think it is as direct an attraction as the things that we've already talked about. But if you have sage casting or artisan casting, you are you have the flavor of those. You don't have the energy of those roles, but you have the flavor and a lot of the interest. Uh-huh. So uh, you as a server with sage casting, uh, you also have scholar essence. So you like to serve and study in the realm of the sage which is the performing arts, communication, media, et cetera. And so it's a natural interest of yours. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to share those interests with people who actually are sages or people who have a sage essence twin. So it's like an, it's an overlap. It's a resonance. And uh, in Joseph's case with the, um, the artisan casting, uh, you like to study and lead in the artisan realm, which is design and structure and and creativity and so forth. And so people who are actual artisans who have that essence of creativity and that innate understanding of craft and design, uh, architecture and so forth, they're going to be a natural interest for you. But it's not quite the same as the way that you tend to be attracted to people who have the role of your essence twin because you're always looking for your essence twin. So, Joseph, you have, you're a scholar with a king essence twin, mm-hmm. and scholars don't necessarily mate with uh, kings all that regularly, but you will because you have a, a king essence twin, you have that energy in you, and you're just going to be attracted to kings in general. Yeah, I was trying to look for that. Um... I haven't found it, but I guess it's like I'm not at the point where I can just kind of look at somebody and be like, oh, that was a king. But I did, I channeled my partner and a few of uh, the most kind of prominent past partners. And they were all either artisans or like one of them was priest with like triple artist, like, you know, essence twin and double artisan casting. And, and, and they were like different Enneagram types too. Like even ones that I didn't channel look like they were probably artisans. So it may just be something kind of, uh, like a particular quirk of mine. Um, I mean, the body type, for example, of my current partner is solar lunar, and I'm Saturnian mercurial, so that there's something there. Yeah, and I, solar is attracted to all the types, and everyone's right. attracted to solar, so that, yeah. that works too. <laughs> um, if you have not yet been in a romantic relationship with the king, you might still think about kings that you're drawn to, not necessarily romantic, that you find... Right compelling, and also being a scholar and being therefore neutral 
you're probably more versatile than the other soul types, right. and you probably find all types of souls really interesting and worth your studying. So these other factors of attraction might not be quite so important for you. Yeah, that's well. I mean, my two best friends are a king and a warrior, so that kind of um, plays out. But I think I wanted to say something just quickly earlier too about the scholar thing when we were talking about David. Um, one of the things about scholar that I always assumed that David would be a scholar, even though he's pretty warrior-esque, but um, because when I first started to get into the Enneagram and I was talking to, say, Emeka, for example, who is a server role, um, I just got this sense from everybody in the Enneagram world that I was supposed to be doing it for some kind of reason, like to better myself or to inspire others, like, you know, or I would start kind of teaching the Enneagram to people and they would always be like, so what does it mean? Like, what do I do with it? And what's, you know, how do I better myself? And I was always like, I don't know, who cares? Like, isn't this just cool? It's just cool. Like, let's just, you know what I mean? It's information. It's just, it's information. Yeah, exactly. And it's really interesting. And, and I know a lot about certain things and I'm never going to do anything with it. And I think that, um, I I think David and I kind of have that somewhat in common where he's always just been like, I like putting my fingers in this stuff and playing with it and just because it's cool. Um, so I think I kind of maybe do the same thing in a sense with uh, like attraction. Well, and once you assimilate a body of knowledge, you might find yourself using it uh, without thinking about using right. it uh, yeah. because of the way that you're framing things now that you have that knowledge. Totally. And yeah. certainly if you know what your, your negative goals and chief obstacle are and you start to notice it, you might find yourself just gently moving yourself toward a more positive experience. So right. you may actually be using it, uh, but you you always start with assimilating. And this is a common thread with um, scholars. All right, mm-hmm. so probably a good spot to stop and do this again next week. Thank you, Shepard. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for doing it. It was right. a pleasure, a lot of fun. All right. Thanks. Bye. Later, everybody. All right, bye. Bye, take care.